What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts. Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take deep, irreverent dives into lesser-known stories of the early United States. Yes. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess Dory. And today, I've got an interview that I can't wait to share with you. I talked to Bob Crawford, the creator of a brand new six-episode podcast about my fave, John Quincy Adams. Mm -hmm. It's called Founding Son, John Quincy's America. Nice. Bob is so passionate about history, and I had a great time talking to him about Adams and Adams' epic battle with Southern slave-owning members of Congress. I love how you have found your people. Right? (laughs) By reaching out to people to interview. Yeah. Yeah. You have found a good bunch. It is nice. It is nice. And and then they fall for this uh, ruse that I've got a podcast. But really, I just want to talk to them, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm sure they'd enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> but before we get to Bob, I want to tell you a story about Adams's battle with something even bigger. Oh, really? The sun. The sun in the sky? Yeah. And... This has just turned into some kind of folklore. No, 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 no. He no, pulled no. down the sun with his silver string. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is why we have day. Um, and I want to share some updates on a story that we talked about in our first season that involves a place where the sun don't shine. Oh, yeah? Yep. I want to hear. The center of the earth. Oh, right. Yes. The mole people? Oh, yeah. We got some mole people updates. Oh, wow. Mole people updates. A little bit. A little bit. Wow. Are you updating your own corrections? Oh, no, not that kind of update. (laughs) Okay. This is an update where the rest of the people have fallen in line with me. (laughs) (laughs) Your favorite kind of update. (laughs) Yes. First, it's important to know that John Quincy Adams was super into astronomy, to the point where his opponents made fun of him for it. When he was president in his first annual address to Congress, like the State of the Union, he talked about the fact that all these astronomical discoveries were happening every year, but they're all happening in Europe. Because Europe had 130 observatories, and the United States didn't have any. Wow. So in his address, he said, We have neither observatory nor observer upon our half of the globe, and the earth revolves in perpetual darkness to our unsearching eyes. That is a scary thought. Right? You know, he was like, we're blind and could be destroyed by outer space at any moment, because we're not even looking. Well, that's one way to look at it, (laughs) yeah. It's scary. Yeah, he was all about the pursuit of knowledge, but he positioned it here as a competitive thing. Like, are we going to let these other countries keep beating us when it comes to space discoveries? Isn't that like what we did in the 60s? Yes, it totally 50s? is. Yeah, it was like a little seedling of JFK's space race to the moon. But the little soundbite that Adams's critics jumped on was that he called observatories lighthouses of the skies. Hmm. And they took that and ran with it to show that this guy has his head in the clouds. I don't know why, but I'm feeling very connected to lighthouses. Yeah? Yeah, just like representing people I love. Like the light, my rock, you know? That's nice. The light in my life, guiding me home all the time. I feel that from the movie Pete's Dragon as a kid. That's why you like lighthouses? Yeah, that's it. That movie was so annoying. 
I mean, even as a child, I was like, oh my God, this dragon is really annoying. The little boy is really annoying. And everyone in that town, I just didn't like that movie. What do you have against the residents of Pazamaquati? <laughs> I can't believe you remember the town's name. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, lighthouses. Um, But he was always looking up to the skies ever since he was 10 years old, sailing to France with his father, learning how to navigate by the stars. But today, we're going to focus on one star. We're going to look at John Quincy Adams and the sun, specifically solar eclipses. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he wasn't just some stargazer who found out about eclipses on Facebook. He used- <laughs> Like you do. <laughs> right. He used math and science to figure out exactly when they would happen. Wow. When he was just 19 years old, he spent days calculating when a solar eclipse would be viewable. Is that something you learn in school, how to calculate the next eclipse? I don't know what kind of astronomy he would have studied in school. Maybe there was some sort of foundational piece of that, but I don't know what they had back then or where they got it. All right. Yeah. Look into that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's, he spent days looking into when exactly the solar eclipse would happen. And he wrote in his diary, finished my elements for an eclipse and finally found it would be here before sunrise and consequently not viewable. Oh, he must have been heartbroken. The same day he wrote unwell so that I could not do much all day. He was depressed. When another solar eclipse was rolling through five years later, there was no way in hell he was going to miss it. No. He was going to see this eclipse and he was going to see it with all of his eyes. Jeez. Oh, he trudged up through some wicked wind to climb up Beacon Hill and he got a great view and he stared at that eclipse with his naked eyes, oh. so much so that he did serious, possibly lifelong damage to his eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they didn't know that rule back then, No, huh? they knew. They knew. There was smoked glass available you could have looked oh, through, really? but it seems like he forgot. Oh, God. Also, so this was an annular eclipse, which means it wasn't a total eclipse. So the mm. moon covers the sun, but there's still like a ring of sun around it the whole time. Mm -hmm. So... You're looking right into the sun. You're looking at the sun, and yeah, there's there's no moment where it's completely dark and you're mm -hmm. okay to look at it. Like, it's always bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, what were his notable problems with his eyes after that? Well, five months later, he was still complaining that he was almost blind. <laughs> he complained about his weak eyes, pain. This is John Quincy? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah, he complained about... I mean, he had problems with his eyes for the rest of his life. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. I look into the sun for two seconds. And I see purple like all day. Yeah. I see purple splotches. So I can't imagine that kind of damage. I mean, he wouldn't be able to drive. <laughs> um, it might be tough to drive. Yeah. <laughs> His carriages, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it was intermittent or what. Um, he also read and wrote voraciously by candlelight like every night of his life. And he often got eye infections. So... The, oh, the sun damage may have just been like the... Cherry on top? Well, like the, the cherry on bottom. I don't know, like the, <laughs> the foundational problem with his eyes that he just built upon. The bottom cherry? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, my. Um, one time, like, he got an eye infection so bad. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> he got an eye infection that was so bad one time that his wife, Louisa, and her maid, they had to take turns applying leeches to his eyes for days. Well, that's the grossest thing I've heard all day. Yeah. Um, all week, perhaps? 
And Louisa, she had to read to him, write for him, remove the pus from his eyes. That's some major conjunctivitis. That was something gross. I don't think leeches help with that. I don't know that they do either, but at the time, <laughs> so that's so disgusting. The They're just there eating your eye pus. Yeah, that's, yeah. I've never needed glasses until recently. Yes. When I got a prescription for reading glasses. Um, I've also had some weird ocular migraines lately. I'm just, I'm just telling you this about Louisa because I want to prepare you for that kind of maintenance. <laughs> okay, I'll take it on. All right. Because when you, you know, finally got glasses for reading, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. We're growing old together. <sighs> and we're actually doing it. Yeah, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Almost 10 years and now you need glasses. You know, yeah. I see it as like a mark of <laughs> longevity. Ah, okay. But if you need me to apply some leeches, you know, um, you might have to find someone else. We're almost there. <laughs> I don't know if I've told you, but I've had many a run-in with leeches <sighs> in Nepal. I mean, I could tell by looking at you. <laughs> do, do I look drawn <laughs> yeah. to you? Yeah, a little leech. <laughs> a little leeched. But even though the sun tried to blind him, he was still fascinated by eclipses. So jump ahead to when he's 39. How old was he when he hurt his eyes? 23. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's early to be blind. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's the kind of thing 20-year-olds do. They run up a hill without any protection and <laughs> stare at the sun. That's what they do? That's what they do. All right. Now he's 39, and he is witnessing a total eclipse of the sun, this time with protective glasses. Oh, good. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a little late, but okay. Yeah. Um, And the cool thing about, you know, total eclipses, there's that moment of totality, if you're in the right path, where it does get like totally dark. And you can look at the eclipse without protection during that time. But that's how the sun tricks you. Adams wrote about that first ray of sun after the totality. He said, never since my existence have I seen anything like the brightness of the first beam, which he shot forth upon his return. The naked eye could not bear it for an instant. And he wondered. Wow. So, but he wasn't looking at it with the naked eye, correct? Hopefully not. No. Hopefully not. Yeah. He didn't complain about being blind afterwards. So, oh, that's good. Yeah. He wondered why the sun was so bright at that moment, saying, I know not the philosophical reason why the first rays of the reviving splendor should be so much more dazzling than the last beams of expiring glory. But such was the fact. Wow. Maybe, it's, maybe it was the contrast of darkness to bright. Yes, exactly. I'm thinking it's because your pupils have adjusted to the darkness. Right. And then they're working hard to see whatever they can with no light, and then bam, it's all light. Right. Jump ahead to 1846. Now Adams is 79 years old. Oh, wow. He's in Washington, D.C. Um, he's in his final couple years here. And he witnesses his final solar eclipse. So how many has he witnessed at this point? He's witnessed at least four. But when you look at all his references to uh, types of solar eclipses or lunar eclipses, I mean, there's dozens. So he was he was on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was one around, he was he was there. Um, this time it's projected on a screen using a camera lucida, which is kind of like a camera obscura. I was going to ask that. So a camera obscura is like... That's Latin for dark chamber. You have to mm-hmm. be in a dark room for that to work. Remember when you made me one in a little room? I did, yes. And we laid in there and we could see outdoors upside down on the wall. <laughs> yes. But your eyes really had to adjust. That yeah. was a big part of it. I want to do that again sometime. I think the kids would love it. I think so too, if they, if they were patient enough for it. Yeah. 
But a camera lucida is different. It uses like a prism to like reflect an image and it doesn't have to be in the dark. It's a little more complicated. Huh. But okay. the camera obscura, all you need is like, you know, darkness in a little hole. Yeah. So just put bags over the windows. <laughs> yeah. Darkness and a little hole. That's our motto. That's right. The Baltimore Sun reported that Adams was very interested in what was going on at that eclipse. And he must have been because it seems like he went right home and he wrote a sonnet to the sun. Not like in a private diary entry kind of way, but in a mm, this should be sent to the newspapers kind of way. <laughs> no. The sonnet isn't that long, but it's dense. So I'll just give you a taste of it. Okay. To the sun. To the sun. That's the name of the sonnet. Yeah. Eclipsed Saturday, April 25th, 1846 by John Quincy Adams. Celestial source of life and light on earth. Wow. What envious rival intercepts thy rays? Envious. Dares thy own satellite arrest thy blaze? Wow. How dare you, moon? Yeah. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. So Adams's last public speech was in 1843, a couple years before this. It was a rousing two-hour-long speech about the importance of cultivating the arts and sciences, and he gave that speech after traveling 500 miles. It was a month-long trip that included a week on a canal boat. Oh, my gosh. Going two and a half miles per hour and knocking into the walls as they passed through more than 200 locks. <sighs> it was an excruciating trip, but it was worth it to arrive in Cincinnati for the cornerstone laying of the first astronomical observatory in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. America's first lighthouse of the sky. Where was it again? Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And Adams was there. Of course he was. Yeah. It took, you know, 20 years after his presidency, but Ugh. finally we had an observatory. Wow. Yeah. So that's John Quincy Adams looking up to the stars. Now I want to share an update about Adams looking down beneath the Earth. Oh, to the mole people we go. So in our first season, we did an episode called John Quincy Adams versus the Internet, where I looked at some of the most popular stories about him online and on Snapple Caps and how they're all basically lies, or at least not true and shouldn't be repeated. So the wildest is the story that John Quincy Adams believed in the hollow earth theory, if you remember. Of course I remember. How could you forget? How could I forget that? Yes. Um, it's also what put your name on the map. Well, on Snopes. <laughs> Sno no, actually, Snopes is the alligator story. Oh, that was the alligator story. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Sorry. I know, right? You've, you've done so much. <laughs> I've done so much in this weird little niche. Um, yeah. So the story goes that he supported a federally funded expedition to explore the hollow earth, make contact with mole people so we could trade with them. So none of that, none of that's true. Not even the belief in the hollow earth theory from him. Because mm -hmm. um, he was not shy about his beliefs. He made it clear that he thought this theory was ridiculous. We talked about that. We talked about the word visionary and how it was used differently then. Yes, it meant like delusional. Delusional. And, yeah, Adam like had, seeing visions, seeing things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I talked about this story and how it seems to have originated with a Cracked.com article mm -hmm. called Six Presidential Secrets Your History Teacher Didn't Mention. And it was in a section called John Quincy Adams Was a Little Insane. <laughs> and from there, it was picked up by io9 and then, most shockingly, Smithsonian Magazine which was legit enough to make some historians believe it. So after we did our podcast, I expanded on this story in an article for the blog called John Quincy Adams and the Mole People Myth. And that really helped get the message out. And since writing that, I re-engaged with Ethan Liu, 
the, oh, really? the cracked writer. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you may know all this. But, I do uh, know all this. But we haven't talked about this on the pod. For years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, I talked to Ethan Liu, and that inspired him to go back to Cracked after nine years and write a new piece called Cracked Apologizes to John Quincy Adams. <laughs> now, that piece may have flown under the radar as it was published on Election Day 2020. <laughs> right? There were other other focuses. I guess. You know? <laughs> Fortunately. Um, had it been a slower news day. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows what could have happened. Exactly. So in that piece, Ethan Liu refers to me as a nice man from Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, which that's is, kind of him. It's either sarcasm or a testament to my restraint. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. Um, but he writes about how he was he was barely out of high school when he wrote this cracked piece. <sighs> and he admits the mole people part was his embellishment inspired by comic books. And he made it clear in this apology, um, explicitly saying John Quincy Adams was not insane. <laughs> So, John Quincy Adams thanks you, Howard. You know, I hope so. Now. You're here in the present defending his name. I Yeah, I guess. I guess. Someone, <laughs> I would say someone has to, but I don't know that they do. But someone chose to. <laughs> so I got cracked to apologize. That's great. And that made me think, maybe I should take another crack <laughs> at Smithsonian. <laughs> because I had written to them a couple of times. I right. emailed them. But looking back on the email I sent... It was so full of, like, links to sources, and it had a bunch of, like, editors CC'd on it. Any good spam filter would have taken one look and said, like, oh, nobody, you got to (laughs) go. Like, get out of here. It was like the email equivalent of sending a bulletin board with a bunch of pictures and red string. (laughs) (laughs) So I fully understand why I didn't hear back from them. Mm -hmm. But then I read an interview that author Alexis Coe did with Brian Wally, the digital editorial director of Smithsonian Magazine. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to reach out directly to him, Mm -hmm. pleading my case. Right. With less links, hopefully. Yes, yes. Much cleaner email. Um, right. Saner. You were learning. You know, I'm... I'm. My, you were learning fast. My CPU is a learning computer. <laughs> yes. What Smithsonian Magazine did then went even beyond what Crack did. And I think it should become a model for updating erroneous information online. Mm-hmm. Because Smithsonian did not publish an update, like mm-hmm. a new article like Crack did. And like the Presidential Pet Museum did about the story of John Quincy Adams' pet alligator. Right. And that's important because I understand like with newspapers, you correct an error by printing a retraction. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's all you can do. You can't like go. Uh, you Back can't, in time. Yeah. You can't fix those old newspapers by going house to house with a mm-hmm. Sharpie, like stripping mm-hmm. every hamster cage of its lining to correct the past. <laughs> but with the internet, you can at the very least update a page to include a link to your retraction so people don't keep finding the original post and believing it. Right. So that way the new the new findings will always have that new information there. Exactly. And then Smithsonian didn't just do that. They went above and beyond. They kept the same URL. So any websites pointing to this as like a reason to believe it would continue to point to it, but they reworked the article and they changed the title too. Oh, wow. They changed the title from John Quincy Adams once approved an expedition to the center of the earth to John Quincy Adams was an ardent supporter of exploration. Nice. Mm -hmm. And they added an editor's note that says, this article previously suggested that John Quincy Adams was a proponent of the hollow earth theory who approved a proposed expedition to the planet's center. In fact, Adams dismissed the theory and only agreed to support the voyage after its organizer reframed its objectives. Mm -hmm. So I think it's so cool that they did that. I really appreciate it. Um, 
Even though I think it objectively makes their article less interesting. <laughs> right. But, you know. It doesn't matter. The right. truth matters. Yes. Um, they cited my work and the work of J.L. Bell, who really cracked the case with mm-hmm. the visionary uh, misinterpretation. Um, so thank you, John. Thank you, Ethan Liu. Thank you, Brian Wally. Um, and since all this happened, my unscientific research shows a huge reduction in the amount of times that this legend is shared on Twitter or written about anywhere really? else. Yeah, yeah. Did you take some data? Um, I searched and I saw less stuff. And I did <laughs> that a lot. It's very scientific. And then sometimes I would see stuff and then I would respond to stuff. <laughs> um, like a madman. And over time... <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> people stopped walking on my lawn. They're like, watch out. He doesn't want anyone to walk on the grass. <laughs> oh, man. Watch um, out for Howard. <laughs> there was a podcast, uh, Doughboys, uh-huh. that recently talked about it, like just threw it out there. And it's funny because... The co-host, not the guy that mentioned it, but the co-host is named Nick Weiger. Mm-hmm. And he was my teacher at the Upright Citizens Brigade sketch writing class that what? I had years ago. Oh, my gosh. So just a small world kind of yes. cool thing. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So this, yeah, it's a strange myth. I never imagined I'd have any hand in correcting. <laughs> but what can I say? I'm just a nice man from Los Angeles, You're and this is what I do. A nice man from Los Angeles. If only they knew. Yeah. Uh, now that we've talked about what John Quincy Adams wanted to do in space and what he didn't want to do underground, mm-hmm. it's time to talk about what he actually did on Earth. Okay. So here is my talk with Bob Crawford, creator of the new podcast, Founding Son, John Quincy's America. Nice. Welcome to the show, Bob. As our listeners know, I'm a huge John Quincy Adams fan. First of all, I was really excited to hear about your new podcast, Founding Son, John Quincy's America. Once I got past that pang of jealousy where someone else was, you know, writing about my guy, there was just excitement. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to John Quincy and how, I mean, you're, you're the basis for the Avett brothers. You're on the road. You're reading history books. What was it about him that kind of clicked and made you say, I have to do something with this. Well, he's been with me for a long time. You know, my always loved history, but got serious in around 2004. And I came in in the David McCullough wave, if you will. Those What a great gateway. Right, exactly. A gateway drug for history. Yes. You know, John Adams, 1776. Um, and then my next step was Sean Wilentz, the rise of American democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln. And mm. that was the that was the actual mind-blowing moment that made me love not just it didn't just raise my curiosity about John Quincy Adams, but it gave me the sense that we learned Revolutionary War, we learned Civil War. Hold on a second. This transition from the early Republic to the Civil War. That's where the action is. Yeah. And it is a turbulent period. And the characters, I mean, the characters, Henry Clay, Mm -hmm. Martin Van Buren, uh, Tyler, all of these characters, Calhoun, you know, they're heroes and villains and and they're, they're heroes and three pages later, they're villains. Like, you know, just, it's just a rich period and I don't understand why more just casual history lovers don't gravitate to it. Of course, the scholars gravitate to it. People like you and I gravitate to it. But 
but I think I don't think the, the casual person who loves American history or is intrigued by it, they don't naturally go there. So Sean Wilentz's book, and I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to understand this period better because he leaves no stone unturned. His his detail, in, I like what I something I realized from doing Founding Son is that I'm I'm more of a trees person than a forest person. Okay. Like yeah. I love the minutia, the little asides. You know, I'll like write down little quotes that that I just pull out of a book. Like today, I was reading in uh, William Lee Miller's um, "Arguing Slavery" about Joshua Levitt and um, talking about the House in in 1841. He was the editor of the Emancipator, which was a abolitionist newspaper, and he spent a lot of time in Washington. He was kind of becomes like a, a, a an unofficial house staffer to John Quincy Adams at one point while he's battling censure in the house. He and Theodore Weld, Levitt and Weld are like the, the first congressional staffers. I, I kind of think of them that way, but he says the house was nearly always in agitation, like the waves of the sea. And I just pull that out and I just love that moment. Yeah. Well, Lentz's book has a lot of that stuff in it and it just, it just lit a spark in my mind. And two characters that I came out of that book intrigued about were Van Buren and, and Quincy Adams. And so that's where my focus has been, uh, you know, on and off. Like I'm talking 2004 to 2023. So this is like a 20 year journey. So I've, I've read several books and it just had all, the, all this accumulated knowledge. And um, in 2016, Ben Sawyer, Dr. Ben Sawyer and I start The Road to Now, which is it's not weekly, but it's a frequent history podcast we've been doing for the past seven years. And from learning how to podcast and learning, you know, how you can um, flex your history muscle and your curiosity through podcasting, I did a series with SiriusXM. I was connected with them and I pitched a couple ideas. And because I'm a musician, what stuck was this concerts of change, which was about benefit concerts from this, from my argument is if we're going to put it in historical thesis terms, that what George Harrison starts with the concert for Bangladesh, Bono fulfills with one, with his organization one, his, his NGO one. And so after I'm, I made that and learned how to do that kind of a project, a friend came to me and said, Hey, I'm working with iHeart and you want to pitch with me. And so I, I wrote out the John Quincy Adams pitch and it took a long time. It took, it took, I pitched it and there was uh, not much interest. And then I didn't hear anything from January to August of 2022. And then I got an email literally out of the blue. I'd forgotten you know, forgotten all about it. I just kind of, you know, figured, well, it, the world's not ready for John Quincy Adams. And uh, then they said, hey, we love this idea. Let's, let's do this. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livese from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Now, a lot of things that you said just resonated with me, but one of them was seeing seeing the trees instead of the forest. And in our podcast, what I do with my wife here, I mean, it's focused on the trees, it's on the bark, it's it's the sap. And I read an interview um, with you in the New York Times by Jennifer Schusler, and she mentioned how during the interview, you would get up, you would grab a book, you would go down a rabbit hole, and then you would go down another. And I, I've never identified with someone more. So I, I do want to ask... Are there any particular rabbit holes that you're in the middle of right now or yes, you I, just love diving down? Yes. Um, <laughs> thank you for asking. Uh, Benjamin Lundy. Okay. Benjamin Lundy. He was a, uh, maybe you call him like a first generation abolitionist. Mm. Uh, he is from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. And he moves to... Uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, well, Wheeling, Virginia, which is now Wheeling, West Virginia. And he's learning how to make saddles. And he's young. I I think of it like he's living in a house with a bunch of other guys. They're drinking. They're gambling. I think of it like a frat house, (laughs) you know, in the 18 teens. And um, he sees these slave coffles, I think they called them, coming through Wheeling. And that's when he, and he's he's a Quaker. He was raised as, as a Quaker. And he, but he sees these, uh, these slave trains, so to speak, come through and he struck and he says, my mission in life is to end slavery or die trying. And he moves to Ohio, to Eastern Ohio. And at the time, you know, the burnt over region of North of New York, this is where the second great awakening yeah. burnt hot. And, and a lot of these people moved to Eastern Ohio. So all these abolitionists, these people who want to end slavery are living there. And he's very influenced. And um, ultimately, he, he, he goes on to start a newspaper called the, the Genius of Universal Emancipation. And one of his acolytes is William Lloyd Garrison. And he, um, he's a pragmatic abolitionist, right? So you had the colonizationist and you had the, the immediate, those crying for immediate emancipation. Lundy would work with anybody to achieve even one man's freedom, one man or woman's freedom. 
And so he comes down to North Carolina, where I am. And again, remember, this is like the late teens, 18 teens, right? And he he begins to work with abolitionists, and ultimately he takes freed black men and women to Haiti. He accompanies them to Haiti. He negotiates with the Haiti the Haitian government to repatriate freed blacks in the United States. And he eventually, as time goes on, let's fast forward to the 1830s, he's going to Texas to do this. Wow. He's trying to buy land in Texas and bring a bunch of freed enslaved people, men, families, down to Texas and then have them farm and create like a farming industry off of the labor, the free labor of freed blacks. And he never achieves this, but he literally walks across Texas and he kept a journal about it. It's the life and travels and opinions of Benjamin Lundy is what um, Thomas Earl kind of took his journal and, and made a book out of it in the, in the 19th, late 19th century. But what he winds up doing is he begins gathering intel on what the Texans are up to down there, what the, what the, the revolutionaries are up to. You know, Mexico outlawed slavery in Texas. And so there's the revolution, <laughs> the Texas rebellion. And Lundy gets wind that Southerners in Congress are in cahoots with the Texans. And they are going to rebel against Mexico, declare Texas independence, and then they're going to make 13 new slave states out of the land of Texas. So he starts writing pamphlets and he starts sending letters to John Quincy Adams. And so John Quincy Adams is getting up making speeches and he's got all this intelligence that is, is sent to him by Lundy and he's using it as ammunition against the slaveocracy, the Southerners in Congress. So... I have, I believe, all the letters from the Massachusetts Historical Society of Lundy to Adams, and I have been going through these letters, and I just love that relationship because you here you have this, you know, somewhat self-educated Quaker, rough, rough guy, hard scrabble. I mean, he walked across Canada in the winter. He walks across Texas. Uh, he would for the genius of universal emancipation, he would bring, I guess the masthead, the printing masthead, he would carry it in his, I guess a back a sack. And so he would print on the road sometimes. Uh, he and Garrison, Garrison goes on to work for him. And eventually they, they kind of like uh, part ways uh, on doctrine, doctrinal issues uh, for abolitionism. And then of course, Garrison goes on to his fame and becomes more famous, right? He eclipses Lundy, but Lundy's first generation, like Lundy's OG. And so I just, I'm really fascinated by Lundy. Other side of the abolitionist coin, I'm fascinated by Theodore Weld, who will, you know, Lundy drops dead at the age of 50 uh, in 1839. And he, again, he walked the earth for, for abolition, for the cause of abolition. Weld is an equally intriguing character and equally forgotten by history. And I'm, I know I'm, I've been rambling, so I'll let you take right. it from here. But, <laughs> but so th these are the rabbit holes I'm going down to. Yeah. Th these, these abolitionists who, who surrounded Adams and who Adams loved Lundy. And Lundy would write letters in the old English, like thee and thou. And oh, wow. you see in their correspondence 
um, Adams begins to uh, copy that <laughs> when he's, you know, it's just like if you're talking to someone who has an accent, you know, and you're, you might pick up their accent in the conversation. And so um, Adams just kind of adored Lundy and they come from completely odd, they're an odd couple, but I'm just intrigued by their relationship. And then the relationship Adams will go on to have with Theodore Weld. Oh, that's what a, what a gift that he kept a journal. I mean, that reminds me of John Quincy Adams. That's how he's so accessible is his diaries and all the letters that were kept that his father told him, hey, you got to keep these. I can't wait to see what you do with that, because those are stories that I think would really resonate. And speaking of resonating, I don't think about the gag rule in Congress very often, but I've thought about it more in the last week or two than I have in a long time when I think about Tennessee and the expulsions there. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about John Quincy Adams and the gag rule and and what that was and how that resonates or how that's going to kind of be tackled in in your podcast. The gag rule was a House of Representatives rule that you could not mention slavery on the floor of the House. More specifically, you know, in the First Amendment, we are given the freedom to petition our government for a redress of grievances. So the abolitionists, so this is, I'm talking about the 1830s here, mid-1830s. And abolitionists, and in Britain, Great Britain has abolished slavery in the West Indies. Also, the South, for its part, is paranoid because of Nat Turner's rebellion and Denmark Vesey, and they're sitting on a powder keg of humanity, right? So there's a lot of anxiety in the South. Abolitionists are empowered. If they could do it in Great Britain, they can do it here. So part of their way of attacking slavery was to flood the House of Representatives with petitions. Now, Congress back then set aside day a week, certain hours of the week, where congressmen would read these petitions. So if I sent a petition... John Quincy Adams might get on the floor and I got a petition from Mr. Crawford from, you know, Durham, North Carolina, who is praying for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. And that's how the ordinary citizen could have their voice heard in the people's house. But these petitions, people like Theodore Weld are mass producing templates for petitions and then getting signatures and they're flooding. I don't have the number Howard, I need to look it up again, but upwards of 100,000 petitions flood the Capitol within a decade, and Southerners are beginning to get triggered by them. And who's always reading them? The main culprit is John Quincy Adams. And he'll even say, I don't agree with uh, immediate abolition, but 20 ladies from such and such Massachusetts sent me this petition praying for the abolition of slavery. And one of the big... Um, targets for abolitionists was the abolition of slavery in D.C. and the territories because it was federally controlled. You know, the Constitution, the Three-Fifths Compromise, they understood that, that and, and Adams believed Congress was hamstrung to really do anything about slavery in the states. But in D.C., you could do something. The Congress, it was, it was arguable that the Congress had power to do that. So, so Adams is reading these petitions. His desks was were often piled with them. He would show up into the house with them, you know, bundled under his arm. 
And it began to really aggravate Southerners, uh, or the slaveocracy, as he called them. And they pass a rule saying that these petitions are to be tabled. They are not to be read. They are not to be reprinted. They are not to be reported. They are to be tabled. Nothing done with them. Not read. Not seen. This tweaked Adams because he was not an abolitionist. He didn't agree with their tactics. He agreed that slavery was morally repugnant, but but he he didn't he personally would confess in his diary, which you've talked about his credible diary, that slavery will only end through civil war. He knew that. He knew that in 1820. But so here he is in 1836, and Southerners have passed this gag rule. This and it's really an anti-John Quincy Adams rule. <laughs> and he, that's it for him because that's freedom of speech. You're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about abolition, right? We're talking about freedom of speech. You you end freedom of speech, the right to petition, you end freedom of the press, you end freedom of religion. And so that that really stoked a fire in him. And that's what the gag rule is. And so, yes, I agree, Howard. I see what's happening in, in, in Tennessee and to some extent what's happening in Florida. And I say, okay, because we know what presentism is. Yeah. And so we can't say, well, this is the same thing that happened, you know, back in 1836. It's not the same thing. But I always go back to, I'm a broken record, Mark Twain, history. He, I don't know if he really said it, but I think it's uh, attributed to him that history rhymes, doesn't repeat. For me, it's like these bells that go off. You know, when, when I read about the gag rule and I see what's happening in Tennessee, it's like, ching, it's a chime. It's just yeah. kind of like a, you know, just something to uh, sit up and take notice of. And so Southerners had a chokehold on the Congress in in that time period. And not only did the Southerners, that were their numbers not bolstered by the Three-Fifths Compromise, but you had what they called Northern men with Southern sensibilities, Southern ideals, meaning Northern men who were okay with slavery. Now, you, you mentioned Martin Van Buren, and that, that comes to mind. Exactly. And Van Buren is so interesting. He's not as glorious as uh, as Adams. I mean, Adams is a figure that d- belongs in the pantheon. Yeah. Because um, we think of presidents and and the it's like it's almost like this like singular hero, this president, this executive. But what Adams proves is he you got to be in the trenches. It can be the legislator, right? The legislator, the congressman, can be the hero. Look at Liz Cheney the past couple of years. You know, she would never get along with the people that she worked with on the January 6th committee. But there was something bigger at stake. And so for Adams, the thing that was bigger at stake, and again, I'm going to reiterate, he hated slavery. It was, he knew it was vile. It was evil. And he knew that it was, it was ripping up the constitution. Just the idea of slavery was a, we, we can get into this later, but the older he gets and into the 1840s and he begins to just kind of wonder, maybe we need to rip up the whole constitution. Mm. You know, he really becomes an abolitionist at that point. But so the gag rule, the idea of a supermajority being able to silence the minority. And that's what it's really all about. 
And we have that in a lot of these state legislatures now. And we had that in the House. If you think about the Northerners who were sympathetic to slavery, together in union with the Southerners who lived by it. And I think of something, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, who's been on your show, and we had the pleasure of having her here. She talked about how John Quincy Adams absolutely used his privilege in the House, that not everybody could get away with the things that he did as far as fighting against the gag rule. And as far as, I don't know if he was, he wasn't actually censured, but he was going to be, and he turned it, he turned it on its head in a way that um, I'm still trying to understand the the three-dimensional or four-dimensional chess involved in that. If you could speak to that a little bit. He presents a, say 1842, he presents this petition, right? He, he found ways to work around the, the gag rule. And this was a rule that it wouldn't be in effect at certain times, given if, if what committee was, in, was standing or if it was in the committee of the whole, or there, there were all these like variations. And the thing about Adams is he understood the house rules better than anybody. And so he used them to his advantage. And he would also, he would also they would be debating other things and he would sneak slavery into it. So that's kind of how he would get around the gag rule as well. But so he presents a petition from the citizens of Haverhill, Massachusetts. It essentially says, we're done with carrying the South's water. We're using our tax dollars are going to support slavery. And we want to, we want the union to dissolve. Basically, we want to secede. And so he brings that up. He, he reads that petition in Congress and it is on. He is being attacked by Southern congressmen left and right, complete chaos, no order. And Henry Wise, who calls Adams the acutest, astutest, archest enemy of slavery that ever was, um, gets together with other Southern congressmen and they submit a motion to censure Adams. And they have a meeting. All the Southerners get together right after this session and they decide we're going to let the, the Whigs, the Southern Whigs handle this, take the lead. So it's not looked at as being partisan, right? If the Southern Democrats do it, it's partisan, but Adams is a Whig. So we'll let the Southern Whigs take, take charge. So they, they appoint tip of the spear is uh, Thomas Marshall, who is the nephew from Kentucky, who is the nephew of the late Chief Justice John Marshall, who was appointed to the uh, Chief Justice position by none other than John Quincy Adams' father, John Adams. Just to jump in, I think John Adams sure. said the proudest thing he'd ever done in his career was appoint John Marshall. Absolutely. And, um, and in fact, Marshall says, we're not going to censure you, Adams. We're going we're gonna to expel you. And Adams is like, bring it on. So they eventually, it, it is a censure trial. And in fact, at one point, there's a motion to table the censure. And many abolitionists vote to table the censure. As do Southerners who are like, you know, I just imagine like every time Adams gets up to speak, there are people in Congress who are like, oh, jeez. Oh, my gosh. And so there are Southerners who don't want anything to do with this. They don't want to tangle with Adams. Just let the old man blow his smoke and just, 
you know, we can go about our business. Just, you know, whatever. Let him vent. We don't want to mess with this guy. So Adams, Adams votes against tabling the censure for his own censure. He votes against it wow. because he, I have to defend myself. And he takes two weeks to defend himself. And he wears them down. He, wear, he says to Marshall, you don't know what treason is because they were accusing him of high treason. You don't know what treason is. You need to go to a better law school. You're not fit to carry your uncle's water. There's, no, there's nothing like John Marshall and you. And he literally just tears Thomas Marshall to shreds to the point where that is his, Thomas Marshall's last session in Congress. Wow. And so Adams relished. In fact, he gets them to the point where they're exhausted. And they just, all the Southerners get together and say, like, okay, let's just end this censure. Let's just get, it's, it's like two weeks now. Like, Adams has taken over Congress. They can't do anything. And they, they are like, well, okay, we're going to end this, right? We're going to rescind our censure motion. And Adams is like, no, uh, no I need more time. No, we need, <laughs> you know? And so, so he just had this way of just driving these guys. He would trigger them into action and then he would run around in circles and just hammer them and drive them nuts to the point where they would just quit from exhaustion. And Adams would say, Go ahead, kick me out. My constituents will send me back. You know, they they expelled Joshua Giddings, who was a, a kind of an acolyte of Adams, a abolitionist from Ohio. He gets expelled at one point because he doesn't have, like you said, Adams would use his, his he has esteem. He is a former president. And even his archest enemies did defer to him. And there was respect. There was a point where they had trouble appointing a, a speaker and they put Adams in the chair for a couple weeks while they kind of got things sorted out and elected a speaker. But, you know, he was respected and he used that to his benefit. Wow. And I mean, you didn't have like C-SPAN back then, but I believe that these speeches were being reported. Yeah. And in fact, um, many reports about that censure trial where the galleries were packed. You had foreign, you know, diplomats and attaches who were, you know, there early to get a seat. You know, all the ladies of Washington, every, everybody's like, Adams is about to do his thing. You know, it was standing room only. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the process of putting this podcast together? Like, at what point did it become something with voice actors where, where Patrick Warburton and, and Nick Offerman become involved? Yeah, uh, I don't know if I Heart was ready for this. And I, it, it was, you know, it starts out like I, I had been doing a lot of research into Adams and I had a lot on my computer and a lot of like outlines and, and bibliographies and sources and just little, little quotes here and there. And then when we began shaping, okay, how many episodes, what are we going to cover what aren't we going to cover, right? I don't talk about the Smithsonian. You know, I don't, I don't even touch it. I can't. Yeah. I don't talk about the siren, the young lady you you did an episode about. Oh, Mary Helen? Yes, I don't even yes. talk about her. And, and, and in fact, the earliest outlines didn't have the family. Oh. Because there's so much material. And then it just became evident, Louisa has to be here. Yeah. The sons have to be here. Charles Francis, the idea of like the Amistad case hits the newspapers. Adams is home clipping plants in his garden. Charles Francis comes over. He's like, you heard about this Amistad thing? And I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, dad, don't, 
don't get involved in it. <laughs> you don't need to get involved in this. And he's like, oh, I won't. I won't, son. I'm not going to get involved in this. It's okay. You know? And, you know, Charles Francis is trying to start his own political career. And Adams is having these wars defending these abolitionists in Congress, and it's, it's not reflecting good on the family. And so you start to see these human elements, right? These family tensions, these family dynamics, the, the suffering of Louisa. Uh, just I wonder how much of her illnesses weren't from the stress and the strain and the anxiety and the, just the heartbreak she experienced. And, um, so as we, we began to weave this tale and say, okay, here's what F episode one, we're going to get this in, this in, this in episode two, we'll cover this. This is where we want to end up. We start roughing in the family and then, you know, just think normal dynamics. Like when we do a set list for an Ava brothers concert, we're going to, you can come out, we're going to hit you with a rocking number maybe. And you're going to have a full band, seven people on stage. And then at some point there's going to be one guy by himself on the stage singing a song and you have a woman playing fiddle and singing a song and there'll be a duo and there'll be a trio and there'll be a quartet and then you got seven pieces again. So it's all about dynamics, right? You come two hours, you're getting all these different dynamics kind of coming at you from all different directions. You leave, hopefully you say, that was a heck of a show, man. They threw a lot at us. So um, same thing with the podcast. When you're trying to tell a story, it's like, okay, well, what do we got here? We've got narration, we've got experts, historians, and then we've got the quotes and the recorded, especially Adams, who you said he kept a diary, was it 1779 to 1848? So we've got all this material. So, okay, there'll be these quotes. And I put these quotes in the script and then it's like, well, am I going to read these quotes? And that, that's when I thought about Sarah Val. Mm. Familiar with Sarah Val? She, if David McCullough was your gateway drug to history, Sarah Val may have been mine with Assassination Vacation and, and the way that I think about history and narrative and weaving in humor where you can. Exactly. Um, Bob Dylan says, uh, imitators borrow professionals steal. <laughs> I stole, the, uh, my wife and I, Love listening to Assassination Vacation on audio. That's and there's all these great, you know, people, John Stewart, Conan O'Brien, Greg Giraldo, all these people, just Stephen Colbert. They yeah. they'll they'll read these quotes and um it just comes at you from all different directions and it really adds to the experience. And so I started thinking, like, well, what if I got like Scott and people I knew to read these quotes? That'd be fun. And then, then I was thinking like, well, because I, you know, I've met some celebrities and I'm like, well, what if I asked so-and-so to do this? Or what if I asked so-and-so to do this? And then, then it got complicated because then you're talking about, you have to get like SAG licensing, Screen Actors Guild. It's got to be, so then they, so iHeart had to, the producer, Jessica Metzger, wonderful producer from School of Humans, had to go figure out how to make this a SAG sanctioned project. And that took a while and it took a while to, to be approved. So we're, we're throwing it out there and we're beginning to reach out to talent while we're trying to become official while we're writing these scripts. So it became this kind of like dance of, um, a trying to get people, you know, we started just 
throw it, it went from being like me asking my friends to do it to like you know throwing out names and and thinking who who would be you know Andrew Jackson and from the start it was Nick Offerman that was my first we went through a couple ideas for Adams um but it was always Offerman and when uh Jessica reached out to his his agent it was never a no. We had other people for other characters coming back and we would get, you know, you would request and ask and pitch and then they would want to see dialogue and they would want to see what you're working on. And, you know, we would send them all this kind of stuff and we got no's, right? We got rejections, but Offerman never said no. (laughs) And there were many points where we're like, do we need to find somebody else? Or cause he doesn't said yes, but he hasn't said no. And, before we knew it, he was in the studio recording the the lines. So the lines c- came about a little bit later in the, the process, um, but they took over the process once they once it became the the reality that we were going to do this. Um, and, and it's not it's it the dialogue doesn't take over the episodes. There is a lot of narration, and there are incredible historians like James Traub, uh, Sean Wilentz, Lindsay Shavrinsky. Uh, Mary Elliott, uh, just that we, ha- we have a lot of great, just a lot of great historians and experts, but you know, hopefully it, it balances out with the, with the dialogue and, and it, it creates that dynamic experience. Like people listen to the episodes and they say, I got my money's worth. That's what I want. Yeah. And that combination of expertise and excitement where it's really telling the story in a new way, it, it all comes through and it's really exciting. And I'm, I'm just so looking forward to the rest of the episodes. And I truly hope that Founding Son can be a gateway drug to John Quincy Adams and his time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody checks out the podcast and falls down the same rabbit holes that we love. It's Founding Son, John Quincy's America. Thank you so much for having me. It's Thank been you. a pleasure being here. All right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a nice, nice and compassionate guy. Right? Very passionate about his subject. And I just really appreciated him. And he's a great storyteller. He just seemed like such a nice guy. And so um, heartfelt and connected to those stories, just like you are. So I feel like you found the love of your life there. If there, if it wasn't me, it's him. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I talk, I ask him about his rabbit holes and he talks about these great, like, proto-abolitionists and and what they're doing and i'm like thinking guess what i found out about this toy possum so there are rabbit holes of all sizes they're all sizes but (laughs) they go they all go deep (laughs) yes um it just whatever catches your interest but if there's anything that helps you move along towards the lincoln era (laughs) maybe it will be some of his stories to help you move along from um from the Founding Fathers. Speaking of Lincoln, it made me think about Sarah Vowell, which he yeah. mentioned. And yes, I can't believe he brought her up. Because yeah, and when we saw her and Tony Kushner... She hated you. That is she not true. She just hated you. This is, okay, that is a gross exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, I was offended about how much she hated you. It, there wasn't... I don't think hate is accurate at all. So it was a book signing after this talk that she gave with Tony Kushner about Lincoln. Um, she and had no interest. I had her, I asked her to sign a book and, you know, that's what she was doing. And then I think I, I said that I had a presidential history blog. Yeah. 
And, and she she nodded. Not even a smile and nod. It was a nod. No, it was. I think she actually said nice. Like something like that. <laughs> oh, God. Or neat. And she may have said neat. It was almost sarcastic. I think that was just her, her way of communicating in the moment. Like, I don't know. I, I'm sure she gets kind of pitches like that all the time. Maybe. And then I think I but, also like sort of accosted her with being like, hey, you wrote about Lafayette. Did you see anything about a pet alligator? The John Quincy Adams <laughs> And I think she was like, uh, she was like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Security. <laughs> so, I mean, it I was, don't know. It was just such a contrast with Tony Kushner. Who's who, so nice. He was, I mean, he was so nice. I think that he would have, like, followed us on a plane on vacation had we asked him. Like, it yes. Was just this very I mean, friendly, gregarious. Yeah. Conversationalist. Yeah. Just really interested in humans. Like, people, it's a spectrum of social butterfly. Oh, for sure. That they're on different sides of, perhaps. And Sarah Val, I mean, she's a very talented, very funny person. And yeah. so that doesn't always come with, like, great social vibes. <laughs> Especially, you know, while you're book signing. So right. I'm going to give her a pass. I, I'm glad. I, we'll give her one more chance. You know? <laughs> we'll give her another uh, another chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I really appreciated this interview and appreciated how forthcoming he was with his experience with history. Yeah, definitely. It was really humanist. Yeah. <sighs> um, so I would, I would encourage everybody to check out Founding Son, John Quincy's America, and also The Road to Now. Which is the pod, the history podcast he's co-hosted for, mm-hmm. uh, I think, seven years, he said, which there's just yeah. a great archive of stuff where you get to hear um, him tell more stories like this. So if you like what you heard, spread the word and also consider joining our Patreon family to experience the entire interview with Bob Crawford. There's like 25 more minutes of stories mm-hmm. and insights and him talking about um, musical stuff and where that's um, combined with history for him. It's really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go to plodpod.com for more info. And you can find out even more about these John Quincy Adams fake fun facts like the mole people and more if you search for Saving John Quincy Adams from Alligators and Mole People. <laughs> You'll find a 45-minute presentation that I gave at History Camp 2021 which is like this, but with many more visual aids. Very organized. It's it's very organized and it's very visual. And it doesn't have me interrupting. That's the one thing it's missing. Oh, well. Yes. Next week, we're going to be looking at a popular political myth about the first and best American fairy tale. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just happy it's not another stuffy of some kind. It is not another stuffy. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. No. It does um, seem like... We're in the realm of like childhood stories and, t- and toys. Yeah, no, there is a little bit of that next week. Um, and there's also a chat with author Peter Shea about his book In the Arena, which looks at presidential candidates who didn't quite make it to the White House. Hmm. Yeah. Is that related to the fairy tale? It is. Oh, okay. Yes. Look at you. Look at me. <laughs> yes. Big time. Big time, tenuous relationship <laughs> between things that I'll go ahead and plow through. Uh, awesome. Yes. So thank you for plotting with us. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for plotting. Bye. Bye. How dare you, Moon? How dare you?